0: Hello and welcome
1: to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly.
2: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book
1: publishing world. On today's show, author Mary Morris discusses her new book, Gateway to the Moon. Then PW senior writer, Andrew Albanese, explores the London, book fair
2: but first here's a sneak peek at next week's publisher's weekly bestseller list powered by npd BookScan. if i may jump in here jump, because jump, the jump. fiction list is exciting we have okay, a new good. number one two three and four on the hardcover fiction list number one after anna lisa scottoline we discussed this as a nail-biting domestic thriller in our review um, and it features a prominent Pennsylvania a pediatric allergist, a widower who finds love again uh, with a, a woman named Maggie. She adores his son. They have a happy life. But everything changes when Maggie gets a call from her daughter, a high school student who Maggie lost custody of when the girl was six months old. And uh, they think that everything is going to be great, but instead the household is very disrupted. Uh, we say that uh, there's a plenty of twists, complex characters. This entertaining story builds to a satisfying conclusion and uh, readers are clearly jumping on it. Sold just over 14,000 000- mm. Copies in hardcover, according to BookScan. Uh, just below that, The Thief, a novel of the Black Dagger Brotherhood by J.R. Ward. This is the sixteenth book in the very long-running paranormal romance series. We don't have a review of it, uh, but it's, uh, it features a former cat burglar and safe cracker, and uh, she's she's trying to lay low, stay out of trouble. Um, but there's a problem that she's fallen in love with a man she doesn't realize is a vampire and he's also an arms dealer to the black dagger brotherhood so there's a lot of excitement going on there and uh you know, how how far can one really stay out of trouble in a series like this the right, answer is yeah. probably not very far so um definitely still a big hit with series fans going strong uh, we pretty much always see these books on the bestseller list right just below that, Shoot First by Stuart Woods. Uh, And really, I say just below that, both books um, sold just over 12,000 copies. The J.R. Award is ahead by only a few hundred, according to the NPD numbers. And uh, Shoot First is the 45th book in Woods' Stone Barrington series. We say it's pretty smooth. And uh, business takes Stone Barrington, who's a wealthy New York lawyer, to Key West, Florida, where he meets a Silicon Valley entrepreneur uh, whose company has developed software for a self driving car. Uh, unfortunately, her ex business partner is trying to have her killed. And so uh, Stone steps in to save the day. We say, as usual, the principal pleasure lies in watching the suave, resourceful Stone maintain his good humor and high lifestyle throughout all of his mm. travails. That's at number three. And at number four, The Sixth Day, A Brit in the FBI, number five, by Catherine Coulter and J.T. Ellison. Uh, And this continues the series featuring special agents Nicholas Drummond and Michaela Kane. And they take on a ruthless mastermind in this uh, latest installment. And uh, I'm I'm, I'm not actually as familiar with this thriller series. Um, Might be the first time it's on our list. So um, nice to see a relative newcomer Uh, coming up the list and doing very well. At number seven, so there's still really a lot happening here. Um, five of the top ten books are, are new to the yeah. list, new out this week. Uh, number seven, Circe by Madeline Miller. I feel like this is uh, one of those book titles that they choose specifically to test people who have to talk about it on the air. Do you know how to pronounce this right word or right. not? And uh, Miller follows her impressive debut with The Song of Achilles with a spirited novel about Circe's evolution from insignificant nymph to formidable witch, best known Known for turning Odysseus's sailors into swine, uh, so this is a, a real sort of deep dive uh, fiction take on the the mythological character and uh, dealing very directly with the myth and the mm-hmm. Odyssey. And uh, we say that weaving together Homer's tale with other sources, Miller crafts a classic story of female empowerment. We gave this a starred review. We called it an uncompromising portrait of a superheroine who learns to wield divine power while coming to understand what it means to be mortal. And uh, that's at number seven. And finally, just hitting a couple of other highlights at number 14, Macbeth by Yonisboe. Uh, whose name I am almost certainly un- mispronouncing. This is the uh, an ambitious entry, we say, in the Hogarth Shakespeare series, um, which transmutes Macbeth into a crime novel set in 1970s Scotland. Oh, wow. Uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. We say it's a clever re-engineering of one of Shakespeare's great tragedies, but at nearly 500 pages, the story feels a little bloated. And finally, just below that, number 15, The Cutting Edge, a Lincoln Brime novel by Jeffrey Deaver. And we gave this a starred review, said it's a a stellar, spectacular book, the 14th in the series. And uh, in this one, an engaged couple come into a jewelry store to pick up a ring, but a gunman wearing a ski mask is right behind them and he shoots them dead. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that, uh, how that, Plays out in this novel, and we say that Deaver keeps the twists and surprises coming in this roller coaster ride of a thriller. And that's what's happening on the roller coaster ride of the hardcover fiction bestseller list.
1: So now we have nonfiction, and we also have a new number one, two, three, wow. no, four. But we have uh, Madeleine Albright topping the list. Uh, fascism, a warning. Madeleine Albright's uh, Clinton's uh, former, uh, former President Clinton's secretary of state, uh, current Georgetown professor. Uh, we say, yes, it can happen here and in other countries, according to Albright's far-ranging exploration of the history and and latter-day prospects of fascism. We say that Albright sometimes paints with too broad a brush in conceptualizing fascism, but she offers cogent insights on worrisome political trends. Uh, the next few titles, this is more along the health, uh, mental health. Uh, number two, The Plant Paradox Cookbook, 100 Delicious Recipes to Help You Lose Weight, Heal Your Gut, and Live Lectin-Free by uh, Stephen R. Gundry, a medical doctor, is the companion to his uh, best Book, uh, the Plant Paradox, and then we have the Clean 20, 20 Foods, 20 Days Total Transformation by another doctor, Ian K. Smith. Uh, this is at number three, and he's the best-selling author of Shred and uh, Blast the sugar out. So some more diet cookbooks or or diet health books. At number six, we have the 50-state border crisis, how the Mexican border fuels the drug epidemic across America by Howard G. Buffett. Uh, We don't have a review of that. And then uh, we also have uh, number 19, Barbara Ehrenreich, natural causes, an epidemic of wellness, the certainty of dying, and our illusion of control. We say here, claiming to be, uh, quote unquote, old enough to die, feminist scholar Aaron Reich takes on the task of investigating America's peculiar approach to aging, health, and wellness. Uh, she comes down hard in what she describes as, as a, uh, what she calls a uh, medicalized life, which is this unending series of doctor's visits, fads, and wellness, and uh, preventative care screenings, we say this knowledgeable book arrives in the context of an urgent American health care crisis when many people can't access an affordable health care, which may irritate some readers. But still, Aaron Reich's sharp intelligence and graceful prose makes this book largely a pleasurable read. And For that's right it. Now, that's it. I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Mary Morris tells us about crypto Jews in Spain. We'll be right back.
2: My name is Lauren Hilgers. I'm the author of Patriot Number 1, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox.
1: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
2: Today we've got Mary Morris on the line. Her new book is Gateway to the Moon. Hi, Mary. I'm so glad you could join us.
3: Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me.
2: Your novel is the story of a hidden faith. It's set in 1992 and also in 1492. Tell us a little bit about it.
3: Um, well, it's it's a story that came to me when we were living in New Mexico, and um, actually we hired a babysitter, and this babysitter had a lot of questions about our background. My husband, I'm Jewish, my husband's not, but this boy was very interested in, he had questions about what it meant to be Jewish, and it turned out that his family kept certain practices, even though he was Catholic as far back as he knew, his family didn't eat pork, and they... Um, they lit Campbell's on Friday night, and he he had a feeling about his his history and his buried history. And he always, I forgot his name, but he always stayed with me. And years later, when I started to think of a new book and I started to think about buried histories, he came back to me. So it's he's Miguel is sort of my main character, but it moves back and forth, as you said, between contemporary time of 1992 and 500 years earlier.
1: So, let's talk about uh, the main character, Miguel Torres, who is an amateur uh, astronomer living in New Mexico, as you had just said.
3: Yes. Um, so Miguel, um, Miguel has a lot of questions about his life. Um, he's not really sure who he is, how he fits in. Um, he isn't doesn't quite feel right in his own family. Um He doesn't feel in a place in the world. And he spends a little time in juvenile detention, and he becomes interested in the sky and in the stars and in celestial navigation. Um, He wants to discover a moon because he says that a boy like him could never discover a planet or a comet. He would have to discover something that just was about reflected light, not about real light. So Miguel has these issues in his life. Um, He's searching. He's trying to understand um, he's coming down from this place where he goes to look at the stars because it's very dark. And in fact, there are places in New Mexico that are known for their absolute, you know, the the, the extent of the darkness of the sky. And um, he goes to this place not far from his home. And on his way home one day, he stops at a bodega and sees an ad for a woman who's looking for a babysitter. And Miguel wants a job. He wants to get a real telescope. Um, and he wants to just earn a living and have some money for himself and to help out his mother. His parents are separated. So he uh, answers this ad.
2: And this is what brings him to the Rothstein family?
3: It's what brings him to the Rothstein family, and he's never met people like this before. Um, Rachel Rothstein is, I guess, the only word for her is a piece of work. Um, (laughs) They are transplanted New Yorkers uh, who have decided to live outside of of Santa Fe in New Mexico. A decision actually my husband and I made, um, but hopefully not like Rachel. Um, She's moved her her husband and two boys out to nowhere, um, sort of searching. She's also searching. I mean, she's in a bad marriage. Um, She's kind of a sculptor, but not really. Um, her only subject so far has been her mother's head, which she has sculpted. Not her mother's physical head, but images of her mother's head. And then um, her mother found out about it, and now she does hands. But Rachel can't really... Everything is chaotic in Rachel's life. She's looking for some kind of stability. Um, and they form a bond that's, um, I think, unusual and uh, and very loving in the end. Even not in the end, but throughout the, the whole story, I think.
1: So at what point does Miguel start um, maybe questioning uh, the Rosteins?
3: So Dr Rothstein, her the, her husband um, really doesn't show up very often um, and uh, it's a Friday night, and Rachel um, is going to make a dinner, and her husband doesn't come doesn't come home for dinner, and she invites Miguel for dinner. And he notices that she lights candles, and um, he asks her about the candles. And she says, well, that's what we do because we're Jews. And he says, well, we do it too. But he doesn't understand why. And then he begins to think about her and, and their life, and then he starts to think about eating pork and things like that. And he you know, he begins this, this questioning and quest for himself. Um, also, where he goes to look at the stars, so it's a it's on a hill not that far from his home, and there's an old cemetery there um, under a big oak tree. And this is true throughout pockets of New Mexico. There are these old cemeteries that have writing on them and have um, basically Jewish stars on them, you know, images that for a long time people didn't understand quite what they were. Now, this is true in the hills of New Mexico and around the area where the secret Jews um I suppose I should explain a little bit about how the secret Jews got there. But before I do that, um, there are cemeteries and markers that have uh, Hebrew writing on them and Jewish stars and things like that. That, in the last thirty or so years, people have begun to kind of look at their histories and look at these cemeteries and look at the meaning of all this. The, the crypto Jews. Uh, should I explain a little bit about the difference? What crypto Jews are? I think maybe.
2: Yeah, definitely.
3: Right. Okay. Um, so most people understand what conversos are. Conversos are people who were forced to convert in order to stay in Spain or Portugal during the time of the Inquisition. Crypto-Jews are Jews who only converted in in a public sense, but in private, they kept their Jewish practices. And many of them came to the New World, many of them went to Mexico, where they were able for quite a while to um, have, you know, uh, present themselves as Christian and yet be Jews in secret. But when the Inquisition came to Mexico City, Mexico, in about, I don't know, 1560 or something like that, um, they began to um, you know, look into these, these people, these new Christians they were called, and many of them, they began burning people at the stake, which is what the Inquisition did. Um, and so there were uh, crypto-Jews who kept their Jewish practices, who started to move north. And the farther they got north, the more safe they were, and the hills around New Mexico became a, a place where they were able to form communities. This was hundreds of years ago. Over the years and over generations, they began to forget they were Jews, but they kept up the practices. So most of these people have long ago forgotten their Jewish heritage, and yet they keep up the rituals.
2: So that's Miguel's story, or Miguel's family that's Miguel's story. story, and that's yeah. what he, that's what he yeah. gradually uncovers. Um, how does he change with the information that he learns about his ancestry, where he comes from.
3: Well, so that's actually at the very end of the book. So it sort well, of would we don't be we don't want spoilers. any spoilers. So I don't want to give any spoilers, but I will say that there is a genealogy chart at the front of the book and that the Gayway, despite moving in time through hundreds of years, is the story of one family. And these people are all connected and I think that what Miguel, in his search for the stars and his understanding, is looking for his place in the universe. And I think that that is what he will come to find without giving too much away.
2: So tell us about the research that you were doing for this book into Jewish traditions, crypto-Jews, and all, all the history of the Inquisition.
3: Well, it's so there was a moment when I started this book, and... Um, I said to my husband, Larry, who's my, a very good, my wonderful critic and my conscience in many ways, I said, I don't want to have to write, I don't want to write historical fiction. I'm not going to write historical fiction. I'm just going to write about the babysitter and Rachel. And I said, do you think that book would be okay? And he said, it would be okay, but it wouldn't be as good as the book that I think you really want to write. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to need to do this. I'm going to need to start digging into the history of these secret Jews. And if you start to dig into the history, you find yourself in the Inquisition. And as I started reading about the Inquisition, that led me to Columbus, because coincidentally, Columbus sailed more or less on the same day, and I think it was the same day, August 3rd, 1492. The day of the expulsion was the same day that Columbus sailed for the New World. Hmm. And there are very interesting reasons for this that I'm I'm reading a new book now called Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean, which is a phenomenal book, actually, and it explains a lot about the Columbus First Journey. But one of the things I read as I was doing my research into Columbus was he took an interpreter with him. And this interpreter, Luis de Torres, who is Miguel's ancestor, spoke Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, Portuguese, Spanish, and he was a crypto-Jew. And... Columbus hired him because Columbus believed he was going to China. In fact, Columbus, till the end of his life, never accepted the fact that he hadn't found China, um, and he wanted someone who could negotiate with what he believed would be Jewish or Arabic traders along the way. So, essentially, he thought he was going to find a, a water route to the Silk Route. You know that he would find himself in China and he would meet all these traders that he'd heard about through reading Marco Polo. I mean, Columbus was insane. And this voyage he took was based on his crazy map. Um, And in terms of of doing the research, as I came to understand more about Columbus, um, I got a grant, and I was able to spend some time in Spain um, and Portugal. And I found out that the original map that Columbus used to sail to the New World, which was probably a map he drew himself, was in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. And I decided that I had to make a side trip and try to see this map and see what, what was the journey that Columbus thought he was going to make. And I was able to get credentials to see the map in the map room at the Bibliothèque Nacional, and they brought out this enormous map that was completely bonkers. It's so hard to describe it because it was filled with None of it really made sense. I mean there was the known world which was pretty much the Mediterranean, but once you left the Mediterranean, Columbus had no idea where he was going or or what, you know, there was a place, one of my favorite was a place on the map a little to the north called Frixlandia, which I don't think any of us have ever heard of Frixlandia before. Um, but it's a land of ice and snow where people lived on frozen fish. This, again, was all in his imagination and from his reading the Marco Polo and things like that. And then at the very end of his map, there was this tiny little island that he'd called Paradise. And I watched, looked at this map and I realized that this man had this megalomaniacal vision of himself as someone who was going to discover, you know, paradise, essentially heaven. So... um, It just kind of was down a rabbit hole, and I got more and more fascinated with with Columbus and trying to learn more about Luis de Torres, who traveled with him, and who um, no one knows what became of Luis de Torres because one of Columbus's, uh, again, it's a long story, but one of Columbus's ships, the Santa Maria, uh, shipwrecked. And Columbus, on his first voyage, left 40 men behind in part, partially with the idea that they were going to create a fortress and be a stronghold in the new world, but also so he could go back to the king of Spain and the queen and say, well, I left 40 men behind, so you've got to fund a second voyage so I can go get them. (laughs) They were all killed. No one ever knows what became of them. But the Indians, when the native people, the Tainos, when Columbus went back, said there was a man who escaped who had cursed the Christian god. Now, this may be true, this may be false, but I thought what an incredible premise it would be if Luis de Torres had somehow survived, and you know what I mean, he actually doesn't really reappear in the novel, but his descendants do.
2: What a legend!:
3: so, Yeah, it's an incredible I mean there's there's so much to this this story of of Columbus, and um, in fact, I'm deep into research now about Jamaica that I'm working on a sequel that I won't go into too much, but just to say that the Columbus family ruled Jamaica for 100 years. They were given Jamaica as sort of compensation. Uh, In fact, it wasn't given to Columbus or even his son, but it was given to Columbus's daughter-in-law, who continued a 30-year lawsuit into the 1530s. And she was given Jamaica, and she had one stipulation, which was that she controlled the church. And the king of Spain said, no, you can't control the church because you're under Spain. And she said, then I don't want Jamaica. And then he said, okay, take Jamaica. And she did. And the Inquisition never went to Jamaica. Oh, and wow. no one knows why. You know, why didn't she allow the church into Jamaica? Because she was probably a crypto Jew. Wow. So she's kind of a great hidden woman. She's not in this book, but she's a woman that I've gotten very interested in. I mean, there is a woman in the book, um, um, uh, Beatrice de Luna who was very, very helpful in getting Jews out of out of Portugal and Spain. And There was an underground railroad,
2: much as there was during the slavery period here. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
1: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And... Conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
2: I'm Rose Fox.
1: And I'm Mark Rotella.
2: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
1: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
2: Welcome back. We're talking with Mary Morris, author of Gateway to the Moon, who's telling us about this fascinating history of crypto Jews in uh, the, the new world. And tell us about some of the the sections of the book that you set in that time period once you accepted that you were at least partly writing a historical novel.
3: Right. Well, once I once I committed to it, um I was, you know, I was in. Um so the the various the, the historical parts, there's there's the Columbus voyage um to the New World and and his and the relationship with Luis de Torres. And then I moved the novel out of Spain. So so the novel all the present time story is 1992, and the novel begins in 1492 in the historical past and goes until the Korean War, which was about the time that people started to look into the crypto-Jews. Hmm. So the past moves forward in time. So the first part was sort of the Columbus period, and then I moved on to Portugal, where um, many Jews who escaped from Spain went to Portugal. Um Amazing things happened while I was doing the research. I mean, when I was in Spain, I I stumbled on a tiny two-room museum called the Museum of Jewish Heritage in Seville, and all Jews were wiped out of Seville by 1490, so there weren't any Jews in Seville after that time. But this museum had a young woman in it named Rebecca Cordero, who, she was probably 30 years old, we've become very close friends, who is the... The, the the number one historian of Converso Jews in Andalusia, and I spent the next two days with Rebecca as she took me around and told me stories about Seville and what happened to the Jews of Seville. So that became a chapter in the book, and it's the story of Inez Cordero. I I gave Inez um, Rebecca's last name as a as a nod to Rebecca for telling me some of the stories she did, um, and then I went on to Portugal where I had an incredible guide who told me about something that very few people, including Portuguese friends, know about, which was the massacre of 1506, in which um, the it was a, a very bad time. Of, there was a lot of pestilence in, in Lisbon. There was um, a tremendous heat wave. Uh, the, the, the king of um, all of the, the our aristocratic people had left Lisbon because it was so hot, but somehow they had this idea of bringing cows into Lisbon and that cows would take the pestilence. But instead, somehow the cows would cure the pestilence, but instead all the cows did was they brought basically cow dung and made it, made it worse. And something happened in a church one day, and the so people began to riot, and they blamed everything on the Jews. And in a period of eight days, they burned 8,000 people alive in Oof. Lisbon. And this massacre is very little known in the world. And only in recent years have, have the Portuguese acknowledged it. And now there is a, a memorial plaque to where this massacre began. But when I heard that story, like I wasn't planning on putting that into the book. But when I heard the story after going to Portugal, I thought, I have to write that chapter. So sort of as, as I learned each thing, it kind of deepened and deepened the story for me. And I, I couldn't leave these things out.
1: Wow. Well, tell us a little bit about the uh, – it's really it's really wonderful stories that you you, you uncovered here. Um, t- tell us a little bit about the violence that the Spanish brought to the Americas, which we refer to in our review of your book.
3: The myths that we carry with us is that the pilgrims discovered America, one, and that Columbus was this great guy and he made this discovery. And so, first of all, Crypto-Jews were actually in America 100 years before the Pilgrims, Um, and as as were the Native peoples, obviously. Um, And that that Columbus brought extraordinary violence. Um, And um, once he realized that the Native people who he met, the Taino, who actually were very gentle and friendly with him, once he realized that they were docile, all he wanted was gold. That's all Columbus cared about, was gold. And he would make people on these islands go look for gold. Now, here's a very interesting thing that I learned about the Taino people. They speak a language called Arawak. And there are actually a number of words in our language, English, that come from Arawak. For example, canoe, um, hurricane, barbecue, and hammock. Those are all Arawak. There is no word in Arawak for gold. They didn't know what gold was. They didn't have gold. But all that Columbus cared about was getting it. And so he would send them out, and, and he would order them you know, to find gold, and they would find something, and they'd bring it back to him. But to be really honest, if they didn't bring back what he wanted, he would have their hands cut off. He would have them killed. He killed thousands that way. Um, others, he decided, at one point Columbus decided that, um, that his gold was going to be in human trade and he tried to ship 500 taino back to spain as slaves and they all either died on board or they died very soon thereafter so he was he brought a lot of violence and then of course there were all the conquistadors and everything that was done to the inca people and the aztec people but in terms of american history the violence that columbus brought to the caribbean and then there was smallpox mm, and um right. the thing that <laughs> the thing that um i guess it's a joke but it's not really funny um, they gave the Native people here smallpox and the Native people gave them syphilis because there wasn't syphilis before Columbus's men came. There wasn't syphilis in Europe until Columbus's men brought it back. So that was that trade. Um, so there's, you know, just been a, a lot of those those kinds of stories. But but what was done to the, you know, in, in, in a way to contemporize it, I mean, everything that's going on in Puerto Rico now really is very painful to me because you know the, the origins of Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico was a, a Taíno native place, but before they were wiped out. And um, you know it's it's a it's a place that's never really been given the respect as a, as a U.S. territory that it that it deserves um, at all. So uh, you know there was violence in many many forms, and then of course the Inquisition, which was hideous. Um, one of the things about the Inquisition, which is oh, there's many things that are hideous about the Inquisition. So anyone could accuse you of being a secret Jew, anyone, but they could remain anonymous. Once you were declared a secret Jew, you had to prove your innocence. Wow. But first, they took away all your property. They took away your position. They t- you, you, all of your wealth was taken by the state. It was basically robbery. I mean, it was basically high-level thievery. So so let's say you were declared a secret Jew. All you basically had to do was recant and say, yeah, I did practice Judaism, I'm bad, but I really want to be a Christian now. If you did that, you wouldn't be burned at the stake or garroted. Um, you'd be made to wear this yellow kind of, dunce cap and a yellow costume for two years to show everybody what you were Mm. and you never regained your wealth. It was never given back to you. So it was horrible. I mean, what was done to these people was horrible. And, uh, you know, and this is what, you know, um, the colonizers brought, um, first to the Taino and then with the Inquisition, Um, these kinds of of tortures. And and a lot of, you know, I could start to talk about Jamaica, but I'm going to try really hard not to because a lot of this also has to do with Jamaica and the fact that the Inquisition didn't come to Jamaica. Um, But, you know, it just was... Oh, one other thing about the Inquisition. So when they, this is really a horrible thing to say, but when they, because they were Christian, when they tortured you, they didn't, couldn't draw blood because that wasn't, like, a good thing to do. So they devised all these ways to torture people where they wouldn't bleed. Ugh. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But it's a horrible violent violence that was brought, um, you know, here.
2: Did writing this story help you to sort of grapple with that history? And all this research must have been very personally harrowing. How did you bring yourself... Through it and into a place where you could sort of look at it and say, "Yes, that happened, but we also need to kind of live our lives now."
3: I, I think it helped me. I think I felt a certain responsibility at a moment to, in my own way, rewrite the narrative. Um, because yes, it was really har- harrowing. Um, first of all, I've always been a storyteller who's always very, I'm attached to my characters. I'm attached to their stories, so I always tried to make whatever. Happened to be about specific characters, and as I was reading, I mean, I guess I just wanted to tell the narrative in a different way. I didn't want the same story to be told as as we are telling it. I suppose as we tell it in our schools and historically. Um, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but uh,
2: no, it makes um, sense wanting to wanting to correct the record.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were things that I would read, and I would just have to stop, you know, and just kind of walk away from it for a while. Um, the the tour guide I had in in um, in Lisbon, um, a wonderful man named Paulo, who is descended from crypto Jews. When he began the tour, he took me on. He be- he began by sitting me down for an hour and telling me about his personal history, and I sort of thought, well, I'm paying money to hear about his story. It seemed a little odd way to go about a tour. And I sort of didn't understand exactly what kind of tour guide he was until I realized he was a storyteller. There's there's nothing to see in Lisbon in terms of Jewish history because it's all been destroyed. But he told me his personal story. But then by the end of the tour, when he was telling me about the massacre of 1506, which I had not heard anything about, he had me in tears. And I knew I had to tell that story. So it's, I guess it was kind of a sense of responsibility that I, I'm not sure I've really felt that before as a writer. But in the more I learned and the more I took on, the more I felt I needed to tell these stories.
2: We've been talking with Mary Morris, and you can find her book Gateway to the Moon in stores right now. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Mark. I'm Rose Fox.
1: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about the London Book Fair. Stay tuned.
0: Hello, this is
1: Elaine Weiss.
3: I'm the author of The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. And
1: you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about the happenings at the
0: London Book Fair Hello, Andrew. Hey there, Mark. Hey, Rose.
2: Hello. Very nice to have you back. It's been a while. So how was your trip to London?
0: It was rainy and cold, but I gather it was here too. Yes, it was. Uh, It was a good trip. It was a a busy London Book Fair again, but a little bit low key. Not a lot of big headlines coming out of the fair this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that was probably okay for publishers because we've spoken about it in past years. There's always been you know some battle with Amazon that's been brewing or ebooks mm. or something bubbling up but it seems now that we're on this little plateau. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any major negative headlines happening. And I think all in all, publishers will take that. That's refreshing.
1: (laughs) Yep, exactly. But there was some big events and news
0: there uh, that you were going to share with us. Yeah, well, there were a few things this year that were kind of a big deal at London. And one was audiobooks. And we've been talking a lot about audiobooks, and and they've been showing double-digit growth now for going on five years, like mm. really strong growth. And that's to be expected, I think, right? When you move from physical CDs and, and other inefficient modes of transmission to digital downloads and streaming, you would expect to see them become more popular. Mm. Um, also, the the growth in podcasts. And like, we're just seeing a real you know, burgeoning market for audio content. But books have really now started to take off. Audiobooks have really started to take off. And Hachette UK CEO David Shelley from the stage said that he didn't see any end in sight to that. Mm. And in fact, he said that he saw audiobooks as potentially being one of the industry's biggest money makers in the future. Wow. And that's good news for publishers, because unlike ebooks, which are still reading, they sort of compete more directly with print books. Audiobooks do not. Uh, publishers see audiobooks as what they call, one publisher once described to me, as more benign competition. Mm. Uh, they're bringing in people who aren't necessarily book readers, and they're now buying more book content, and it's just giving uh, people who are readers more options, I think.
2: It's also a sign that some things are worth investing in. And I feel like I've seen this in trade hardcovers, too, that publishers are investing more in design. I know that the production quality of audiobooks has skyrocketed, and I'm sure production costs have, too. But that hasn't stopped them from being profitable.
0: No, that's exactly right. And, and you know, this is something that Carolyn Reedy, the CEO of, of Simon & Schuster, spoke about last year at Frankfurt, how... For years, they were trying to take money out of the print side of books. You know, they were trying to scrimp and save and make books cheaper. And now they're doing the opposite. Now mm. they're trying to make books more beautiful and better designed because, you know, people want them. So that, that's true. They're they're investing more in the quality of the product. Rather than trying to just you know take pennies out, as she said.
1: So it, publishers, you know, they've always had their audiobook departments, audio departments, but it didn't seem like every book uh, had a a need or a reason for audiobook, and those authors might perhaps go elsewhere. Are they now? Are publishers now holding on to those rights
0: a little more? strongly. <laughs> a really good question. And It's a question that I tried to start writing about yeah. this year in London, and I wasn't able to get there because the money is now really enough for publishers where they're going to start trying to manage it. Before, you're right, they took a very easy attitude towards it. They licensed it when they could. They produced them when they could, but it wasn't a big focus of their business. But now that it's real money, how are publishers going to handle that going forward? Are agents going to hold on to audio rights uh, a little more tightly? Are publishers going to spend money to go back and create audio editions of backlist books that might have, might not have gotten audio components. And then there's a whole range of books that don't even include audio language or contain murky audio language uh, in their contracts that they just they don't know if they have rights or not. Are they gonna try to clarify those? The cynic in me might wonder how publishers are going to screw this up. (laughs) You know, it's like they've they've got something that's really making a lot of money here and they probably should run with it for a while before they try to to manage it a little too closely. But I, I see some big decisions. Coming for them in the future as to how they manage audio, and of course, Audible is a strong player in this as well. Yeah, uh, and you know it would be great if we could get more information out of Audible. Right, um, right, yep. That's just not not going to happen. But I think this is one chance for a do-over in a marketplace for publishers where they can take more control right. over theirs, and their, their the authors can take more control over their future. Audible right now is a terrific service. Um, obviously, Amazon controls it, but yeah, it would be nice to have competition in that part of the market.
2: Tell us a little bit about some of the keynotes, the highlights of the show for you.
0: My favorite keynote was by a journalist named Tom Goodwin. People probably don't really know. He he works for a company called Zenith Media. He's a media expert. He's a consultant, uh, and he's a writer as well as a journalist, but he gave this really famous quote a few years ago that's gone viral, and you've probably seen it. It's about how uh, Airbnb doesn't own any property, but it's the largest hotel provider in the world. Uber doesn't own any cars. And it was it, people grasped onto this as really sort of a, a mantra for the digital age. Well, he gave this great opening talk, and he sort of labeled this, the period that we're now in as the mid-digital age, where you know we technology has given us a glimpse of the promised land, of how great everything could be, and yet everything just sucks right now, right? <laughs> Nothing really works as easily as we think it should or we right. want it to. The technology is all interim. I think ebooks are a great example of that. And it's not necessarily the technology. Sometimes it's the rights re- regime where you, know, you, you go into a different country and you can't read your book that you downloaded in another country. It's just you – know, he, he looks at the future – and it's as an age where everything is just going to work seamlessly and perfectly. And technology will just hum in the background of our lives. And we look at the past where, you know, we didn't talk to our light switches. You know, we just flicked them right. and they went on. <laughs> they, were, they didn't inspire awe, but they worked. Right. And the mid-digital age where we are right now, where we can glimpse how great everything's going to be but man it's just we're not there yet <laughs> in,
2: uh, in, in the movie Spaceballs if you remember back that far at one point a character says even in the future nothing works and that's <laughs> that's been uh,
0: plus uh, one for the Spaceballs yeah, I, yeah, plus one for Mel Brooks back in the 1980s who saw this moment
2: coming um, and uh, and again I guess I'm, I'm a cynic like you and wondering alright how are we going to mess this up because but you know
0: we have a history of doing that We don't do. We? Yes, we
2: do but there are there are definitely also glimpses of that seamless future. Uh, I think we had we had talked at one point about the audio content not just being downloaded audiobooks that people listen to on their own but the sort of gather around the Alexa like it's your crackling fireplace and you've got the radio on and and the whole family listens to a book together. Yeah,
0: yeah and, and that's certainly close.
2: That's uh. that's becoming a much smoother process.
0: And I think publishers are actually looking at there was some talk about Alexa and, and you know, Google Home Assistance and what publishers might do with that. But you know, I think publishers for the most part are just trying to stay where they are in business, stay in their lane, try to manage what they're dealing with right now that if you bring up Alexa to a publisher, they're like, hmm, well, I don't want to try to think that far ahead. <laughs> blockchain was another thing. I mean, I don't know if you guys are, are terribly familiar with blockchain. I mean, obviously, most big, people... Big spreadsheets. Yeah. Well, people know like, <laughs> you know Bitcoin, everyone really, thinks. Really right? big spreadsheets. But you know, there was a great white paper that was delivered by the Alliance for Independent Authors... Uh, with a publisher and an author who had just published on the blockchain there. And it's really being touted as the future of digital publishing. Um, It still has issues with scalability and with stability right now. If there was a a Fifty Shades of Grey style hit on the blockchain, well, there's just not the the computer power to handle that right now. And then there's a little issue with people being paid in cryptocurrency and not real currency. Um, Pebbles is the name of this one currency that this one author was talking about but there's a lot of good things that it solves. You can encode your contract, your payment, your rights information right into the book. It's it can't be corrupted, you know, it can't be pirated. I mean, there's all kinds of right terrific things that I think are really appealing to authors about this. Yeah. Um and also some very terrifying things, but you know, it, it's not quite ready for prime time, but people were packed into this session. Like it was it was quite something. Wow.
2: Well, it'll be interesting to see how this lull, you know, what happens as we come out of this this quiet period, this this low key time when people are just kind of going, okay, we're making some money with audio, we're gonna stick with that.
0: It's funny to think of this as low key time, right? Because we've got Brexit and the Trump administration, and there was there was uncertainty among the publishers politically. Right. They weren't really knowing the the the, the protection, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is the GDPR which will govern the use of personal data in Europe. And that has big implications for how digital companies will work. So there were a lot of questions, but they just weren't front burner this year. It was We really were mostly focused on books and publishing. It felt almost normal. Wow, great.
2: Well, thank you, Andrew. It's always great to have you on the show and um, nice to get such a relaxed report. My pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors.
0: Beyond the Headlines, Beyond the
1: Routine, Beyond the Book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book.
0: And I'm Andrew Albanese, Senior Writer at Publishers Weekly.
1: Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other.
0: Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more.
1: You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: We're on break next week, but we'll be sharing two great interviews from the PW Radio archives for your listening pleasure. When we get back, we'll have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
2: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PW Radio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check